Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, and today I'm joined by Tamara Harris, Democratic candidate for New Jersey's 11th Congressional District. Glad to have you on. Thanks. Thanks, Jordan. I'm so excited to be on. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. So to start, could you tell us about your background? Sure. If I had to describe myself in three words, it would be businesswoman, advocate, and mother. And I come to that because of multiple reasons. But as background, I was born in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was born on the island of St. Croix and spent my early elementary school years in St. Thomas. And my dad worked for a senator on the island. And my mother was an administrative assistant. And I grew up around politics as my dad at the time, who was an older dad, uh, worked for a senator on the island in his office as pretty much as his researcher and chief of staff for most of the time. And I would say that, you know, when it comes to advocacy, I learned very early in life that While most people say politics is local, I learned that policy is local. I grew up going to my dad's office with my brother after school and was was really intimately connected to the impact that an elected official could have on the community because people would come in to the office to ask for help with finding a job or asking for support for education or some other initiative, some other social justice initiative, or to help you know their young adult who had been arrested, or actually asking for help with legislation that they wanted the senator to sponsor to promote business or some other economic initiative. And then I also had the capacity to answer the phones sometimes. And then when I was finished with my homework, I would actually be able to go upstairs and listen in on the Senate sessions and just sit and watch 16 legislators actually debate law and enact legislation. And that was extremely powerful and impactful. And my parents, you know, my dad, you know, he had had multiple journeys in life. And my mother, when I was born, did not have her college degree. And the other experience I had with my mom as my parents divorced and and she became single mom and I was living with her was watching someone go from being an administrative assistant to taking 11 years to get her college degree. I actually graduated from college before my mom did. But once she had her degree, she actually went on to get a job as an executive assistant with someone back on the island. And from that opportunity, rose to the ranks where but by the time she retired, she became the vice president of human resources at Banco Popular for the region in the Virgin Islands. And so, you know, as a young girl, as a young woman, it was just drilled into me that education was the key to a better life. I saw it personally through my mom. I lived it personally on my journey. And so that was just something that always, always stuck with me. So my education journey as a result of that was uh, attending a high school in Philadelphia, Magnet High School. And I have uh, degrees in economics and my, my master's in business from the University of Pittsburgh. And then later on went on to get my master's in social work and public administration from NYU. And one of the things that I would say about my education journey is that, again, growing up in the islands to an older parent obviously meant that I had older relatives, older grandparents. And so I grew up around the elderly. I mean, by the time I was in high school, my, my grandmother was in her 90s. She was bedridden, but I used to visit her in a nursing home. And that was something that even as a, as a teenager girl, as a young girl, that, that was a personal experience for me. So healthcare, taking care of the elderly, uh, senior care was something that I was very intimately involved around as, as a kid. And when I was at, at University of Pittsburgh, actually in undergrad, getting my certificate in Latin American studies, we had a research project that we were able to study. Uh, we had to go to Costa Rica for the summer. And part of that journey was to actually write a research paper at the end. So we had to pick a topic and conduct a research and then write a paper. And my research topic at the age of 19, when I was in Costa Rica, was doing a comparison in their universal healthcare system because they had healthcare coverage, uh, universal coverage. And I compared the type of healthcare you would get if you were sort of in the indigent population out in the cantons away from the major city versus the type of healthcare you would get if you were 
middle class and living in the capital of San Jose. So, you know, even as a young adult, I was beginning to form thinking around those things and wondering what a sort of more um, universal coverage could look like in a country and what did that mean for basic health care, but also access to other other types of health care. So I took all of that education in, in finance and economics, and my professional journey started uh, at Prudential, where I worked in asset management and also in uh, operations management, where I would work to basically help a company when they worked with Prudential transition their defined contribution plan from, you know, their existing asset management company to the Prudential portfolio of, of, of opportunities and investment funds. So I was involved in that intimate transition uh, of managing that team. And then from that journey, had the chance to go overseas uh, and, and lived and worked in Hong Kong for six years uh, as an equity research analyst covering retail ho- and hotel stocks. And then when I made my way back to the U.S., ended up starting an advocacy journey and moved away from the corporate path and focused on education advocacy and advocacy for women and children. So I started a nonprofit that allowed students from Newark and some of the other surrounding communities to attend college in New Jersey or historically black college. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I went back to school and got uh, my master's in social work and public policy. And from that platform, ended up launching a, a divorce coaching business where I work with people going through protracted high conflict uh, divorces. So that's that's my background. So what ultimately pushed you to give up your business career to do social work? So it, it's very interesting. I, I think it, it's not something that necessarily pushed me. I think what happened for me is that, you know, sometimes, Jordan, when you're going through transition, right, it's an opportunity to actually sort of create a, create a new platform and a new paradigm and, and sometimes explore things that you would never even explore. So when I transitioned uh, back to the U.S. from my stint in Hong Kong, I was I was married. I was a mother of a small baby, and then I went on my education advocacy journey and started that scholarship program. and And it was very interesting because at the point that I started that program, I had two small kids. Um, I had an ex husband who was very active in traveling the world, and. I think when you think about transitioning from a career like business and, and moving into a nonprofit space or an advocacy space, it's never convenient. And I, I rarely think that it's something that you immediately decide to do. I was I was always passionate about education and I had gone to a fundraising event in Princeton for the United Negro College Fund. And I was so motivated and inspired by one of the young men that had talked about the impact of their scholarship on his life, where he literally left a, a full scholarship at a university that he felt was not really helping him reach his potential and focused on him as a young man of color and ended up going to Morehouse. And it was only because of three jobs and UNCF scholarships and other scholarships that he was able to graduate. But he graduated with a chemistry degree and went on to actually become one of the top ranked teachers in the city of Newark. So he actually went back and gave back after his journey. And I was so inspired. I remember talking to the the area director and saying, gosh, you know, I'd really love to be helpful. And, and what could I do in, in, my, in my area where I live? And I had actually given money to UNCF through United Way. And I had family members that graduated from historically black colleges and grew up on the island where the College of the Virgin Islands is a historically black college. And he said to me, you know, we would love if you would host an event and raise money for scholarships. And I remember saying to him, oh my gosh, I can't do that. I, I have small children. And I mean, I'll lick some envelopes, but I have no intention of, of doing anything like that. And he literally looked at me and said, we need people like you, you know, young, dedicated families, people that are passionately and intimately connected to the work that we do and the schools that we support and the students we support. And if not you, who else is going to do this? So when you talk about the push, Jordan, I, I think for me, that, that really was the push. I went home and reflected on it. If not you, who? And if not now, when? 
And I think when you sit down and go through those, any, any type of protracted transition, it's never easy. It's never convenient. But if it's the right path for you, once you step forward, you, you keep moving forward and you never look back. And I think that's what, what started it for me. So in 2016, your district went to Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton and the incumbent Republican won re-election for the 12th time. The most successful Democratic challenger he's faced received only 40% of the vote. Those aren't necessarily great signs going in. And I think a lot of folks would be dissuaded from challenging him in this race just because of those numbers alone. What makes you uniquely fit to finally take him down? Thanks. That's a great question and and a tough one, but I, I agree. I think it's it's one that if you're not able to ask, you shouldn't be running. So I would say, quite simply, I believe it's the right race it's the right time and I'm the right candidate. I think it's important to take a step back and really talk about what the result looks like when you have a very surgically gerrymandered district, such as we have in NJ11, and what the progression has been over the past several years. So when it was first gerrymandered, it was surgical to include only suburban parts of towns like Montclair, West Orange, and Bloomfield. And also in Morris County, they removed the town of Dover, which 22 years ago, was beginning to uh, have a greater Hispanic community, whereas now it's it's well over 50% Hispanic. And that was excluded from the district, even though it's adjacent to some of the towns in the district. So it was a conscious and intentional effort to make sure that parts of the you know, the natural sort of lines were, were not included. What that leads to is not only voter apathy, as I'm sure you know, but also I think sometimes apathy from parties that have to actually run candidates in these type of environments, because unless you're willing to really look deeply for the right type of candidate uh, and be willing to invest a lot of resources, it's it's always going to be sort of an insurmountable process and, and feat. And then once you have an incumbent that's been in the seat for so long, where it's almost, you know, they're getting embedded in the community, their reputation precedes them, it, it almost becomes this Herculean effort. So what you've seen is a lot of types of candidates that have been very involved with the party, but not necessarily the right candidate to run against the incumbent. 22 years ago, when it was gerrymandered and very suburban and and very sort of monolithic, it was an easy race. But to your point, Jordan, you make two very distinctive points. And, And I think we had in 2006, Michael Moore actually ran a ficus tree against him. That's how hard it was to, to beat this candidate. And the tree didn't win. But when you look at <laughs> when you look at 2017, um, to your point, even though the district went for Mitt Romney and John McCain by higher single digits, it only went for Trump by 1%. So what's clear is that he doesn't have the mandate. And as you know, because we don't have any walls in New Jersey, you actually saw a progression. Demographically, the communities have changed. You also have an influx of people from New York and a a greater community of progressives. So when I looked at this race and I said, okay, is this the right time? Is this the right race? You were beginning to see this fertile soil of uh, organized grassroots engagement, which hadn't existed maybe even five years ago. And then you also have seen this this shift demographically where you have an influx and and a greater numbers of uh, Hispanic voters, Latino voters, Asian voters, people of color. And so I knew that this district was ripe for a transition, just like we are going through a political transition. And so it became who could be a candidate that could actually build a broad coalition of voters 
excite the base, engage the base with a relevant background and a relatable background and begin to build that momentum and that movement that we need to be able to defeat an incumbent in a general election. And I, you know, I lived in the district. I looked around at the landscape and didn't see anyone that lived in the district that looked like me, sounded like me or had the background I did. You know, I've lived overseas. I have a global, global experience. I speak Spanish. I, I, you know, I'm from the Caribbean. I have a background in finance and social work. I have an intimate exposure and experience to a lot of the issues that are facing our communities and our country. And I have the policy and the advocacy background to be a unique and clearly unique voice at the table, advocating for people in our district, but also people in this country. And so with that, I I decided that I could look around and try to find someone that looked like me, or I could be that person. And and Jordan, for me, at the end of the election that we just had in 2016, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, if you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, that is the true definition of insanity. And the thing I asked myself was, what was the new thing I could do? And so instead of trying to support and finance the candidate, I decided to be the candidate. I come with the skill set, the background, the energy, and the capacity to serve. And it, to me, it's the next step in the spectrum of my political advocacy to be able to offer my background, my experiences, and, and you know, myself to the electorate. So you've emphasized education as one of your top issues. What would you do as a member of Congress regarding the issue of education? So... My two priorities, obviously, would be not just the student support. So if we look at the different components of education, obviously, there's early early education. So I am definitely for universal pre-K. We have to give more children across the country a fair opportunity to succeed. As I talked about, our country is going through a crisis where the things that you know, my generation took for granted in terms of, you know, economic mobility and economic access are slowly being stripped away from us. And, you know, research has shown the earlier you engage young minds with reading and attention and, and being able to be in a learning environment and foster that love of learning uh, and that brain development the better you are going to be as a student, the more viable you are going to be in terms of completing your education path. And, you know, I lived in Asia for 10 years. I lived in Hong Kong for six years and Beijing for four. And I have to tell you that, you know, we have to compete globally, Jordan. And so, you know, early education is going to be critical in developing that pipeline. The other piece of it, you know, outside of high school and, and that channel is is really working hard to ensure the economic viability of college students and, and students having a vocational path. It is very clear the level of debt that students have coming out of college, that burden is is not sustainable. You have people that are working three jobs and literally are living to just pay the interest on their student loans. They have to live at home. Their capacity to move into the next level of life is is really limited because of you know choices that are made for for student loans and to to finance education which is seen as a ticket and a, as a ticket to a better life so we have to continue to provide that that fundamental access to education and, and a collegiate platform but also other paths to education post high school but I, I think one of the key components is going to be fiscal education for students um, as they get ready to prepare for a college journey because the debt that they're being exposed to and taking on, you know, helping them understand what the weight of that decision is going to be as they get through the journey, but also looking at, at some forms of, of, of impacting that debt so that we don't have people that are crippled from the time that they walk out of a college and, and can never earn enough to actually pay those loans. I mean, I think that's horrific and something that I would work very hard for. 
So another big issue for you is gun control. What are your ideas for dealing with the epidemic of gun violence? I want to be counted in the crowd that is just tired of this. And I think that we have to do uh, a couple of things um, because after each tragedy, you know, I'm tired of the prayers. You would think after we've lost children at Sandy Hook and after we've lost students on campus and after we've, you know, had a mass shooting in Vegas that we would figure out a way how to deal with this. But the journey continues. What I do believe is that we have to remove illegal guns. Uh, we have to be stricter about that. Any type of firearm that can kill dozens of people per minute, we have to get that off the street. And I am for universal background checks on all gun purchases and banning assault weapons. I, I do not believe that we need any type of gun that can actually exponentially increase the killing capacity and rapid fire of, of, of a gun has nothing to do with hunting. The Second Amendment, when it was created, was never never intended to give that kind of cover. And, and these are specific threats to our public health and public safety. You know, as a, as a candidate, as a hopeful congresswoman, that's the way that I would be looking at gun control. I think there's two other parts to this. Um, one, obviously, is in New Jersey, we are a little bit more fortunate because we do tend to have stricter gun laws than, than the rest of the country. But, you know, a lot because of the work that I do in social work and crisis support is that, you know, domestic violence and intimate partner violence accounts for 15% of all violent crimes. And the presence of a gun increases that domestic violence situation, uh, increases the risk of homicide exponentially. You know, what we've learned in New Jersey is these tragedies are preventable. And Frank Lautenberg was a leader on this issue. And we have a Lautenberg Amendment that protects domestic violence victims from gun violence uh, at the hand of abusers because we have a boyfriend loophole that lets unmarried abusers slip through the cracks and keep their guns. If you're married and you're violating in a domestic violence situation and you're found guilty of that, you have to surrender your gun. If you're a loved one, of that person, a boyfriend or an unmarried partner, you don't have to do that. I think there's some things that we can do very quickly and very uh, specifically to begin to address this. And I do think that while, you know, we have to make sure that anybody who is a, as a, basically a threat to themselves and a threat to others does not have access to guns, we have to be very careful not to stigmatize the mentally ill. And I think this is part of a broader comprehensive conversation of what we do with access to guns and also the mentally ill, because it is not a mentally ill problem. It is the access to guns and the, the lack of recourse that we have when we see these mass shootings. But it's preventable. But we have to start looking at this as a public health and a public safety issue because it is really destroying Americans' quality of life. And if we don't get a handle on this, it's going to continue to deteriorate in this country. I think you brought up several really important points that I'd like to expand upon. The first is abuse, because of course, when people think about gun violence, the first thing that comes to mind is mass shootings. Most of it actually happens in intimate partner relationships. Most mass shooters have a history of domestic violence. And I think this also has to do with the Me Too movement in which toxic masculinity results in violence, whether it be sexual or gun violence or both. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on legislative solutions to something kind of as nebulous and hard to pin down as toxic masculinity. So Jordan, I, that's, that is like an amazing question. By the time someone is masculine and an adult and we're calling them toxic, you have to remember that there's been a whole journey, right, of socialization and lack of education or expectations that society places on men. And so one of the things that I think is, is extremely important, because I think not only does this abuse happen in hetero relationships, you know, this is about 
power and control. And that is what I deal with a lot in domestic violence and, and divorce dynamics, right? When you're looking at social work and the power and abuse wheel. And so one of the things that I think would be very important for me as a congresswoman is coming at this from, again, from a public health and mental health perspective and education. Because not only do we see abuse in sort of the heterosexual community. I mean, when we look at the LBGT community as well, we have to deal with violence, sometimes domestic violence, but sometimes other violence in these communities. And when it comes to guns and and other weapons, how do we protect our people in our society? And so what I would say is that for me, it gets back to education. This is what it is and who I am at my core, whether that is education in the media about abuse, whether it is education from early childhood to basically to begin to educate young men, young women about their power, about what abuse looks like, because that's the only way. These are the dynamics that begin, Jordan, in when you're dating in high school or when you're being bullied in elementary school. So when we talk about toxic masculinity, obviously there's, there's, you know, sort of things that you can assign and ascribe to people who are actually committing the crimes now. So I think obviously, you know, tightening of those laws and, and doing things that are more protective at the adult level. But for me, you know, given my social work background, my mental health background, you have to start early. So early childhood education, you know, education in, in middle school and high school. Uh, One of the things that I did, I was on the board of WNET and uh, one of the programs that they sponsored was a program called First Person, where it talked about issues in the transgender community and the LBGT community. It was very powerful because you have a whole millennial generation. Again, when you're looking at dating, when you're looking at relationships, you know, what are the things, what are the signs of mental illness? What are the signs that you're with an abusive, toxic partner? You know, how can you protect yourself? So it would be education, tightening up laws that to prevent the violence uh, from happening, but also if it ha- does happen, that there's consequences for that. But it's really also educating and supporting victims of this abuse and this, and this violence, because when there's guns in the home and you have an abusive partner and you have children, most sort of more vulnerable partners in the abuse dynamic will go back to that partner if they don't have the right resources and support. So as a mental health professional, that would be part of my work is making sure that, you know, we are doing things at the federal level, the policy level, at, at the mental health level to be able to maybe provide support for and programs uh, for these women who are victims. One of the last things that I would touch upon to that question about abuse and affecting toxic masculinity, which seems indirect, but I think is is very impactful, and I presented on this to the Georgia State Bar and, and many other presentations, is the relationship between making sure that we keep the census well-funded because measuring the communities will determine the type of funding that gets sent to programs such as the Violence Against Women Act. And if we can expand programs like that and make sure that there's appropriate funding, those are the type of platforms that actually fund things like the National Domestic Violence Hotline. So we need to make sure it's one thing to talk in theory about protecting people from things like toxic masculinity and and, and other sorts of violence in in intimate relationships, but we have to have the programs and the resources there for folks to be able to receive help, be diverted to other resources, and be able to build a pathway of advocacy for themselves, supported so that they can leave these toxic relationships and protect themselves and their children and, and whoever else may be caught up in that violence. But if we don't protect the census, it is going to have a huge impact on the the funding of programs like this and laws. And and we're going to see a a further backlash as we've seen with this tax reform bill and this attempt to really undermine institutions in our government. That would be something that I would be passionately fighting in Congress. I'm really glad you brought up mental health. And of course, going back to gun victims, 
a lot of the times uh, perpetrators of gun violence are called mentally ill as long as they're white. But in reality, this tends not to be the case. And actually, mentally ill people are more likely to be victims of gun violence themselves. I'm wondering if you could expand a little about your plans to provide affordable care to folks with mental illness. That's that's great. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, I think to your point, this could be an all-day conversation of, of how we label different constituents when it comes to mental health and, and all kinds of other mental challenges. So again, what I would say is that coming back to my original platform of my advocacy, I think that you cannot begin to address these type of issues and how you would work in the in the communities uh, of gun violence and protecting the mentally ill until you really have that comprehensive conversation and decision about healthcare. Because if if we are not addressing mental illness, and so there's poor mental health when you're struggling with just uh, episodic depression and, and other types of things versus, you know, people who are dealing with psychoses like schizophrenics and, and other types of really sustained mental illness. And so what I'm afraid of, and this is to your point, Jordan, what I'm afraid of is that, you know, people in that second category, if they're suicidal, if they have access to a gun, you know, if they're perceived as a, as a threat, can really be, you know, stigmatized and, and we don't have a system that is, is, is really good at taking care of people in that, in that state. We have to make sure that if they are functioning and out there, they don't have access to guns because to your point, a lot of the gun violence is, is self-inflicted. When you actually look at suicide attempts with pills versus knives versus guns, I think it's like a 90 plus, 90 plus percent completion rate when it's with a gun versus when it's with, you know, some other weapon or whether it's with pills. You know, the mentally ill, when they are on their journey of crisis, are not trying to take down everyone. I mean, they're usually trying to self-harm and, you know, what are we doing to protect those folks in that capacity. I think we have to have a bigger conversation about what is mental illness, who are literally through whatever their journey is as they begin to struggle mentally with trauma and other mental challenges, what happens to those people and what is their access to to weaponry? Especially, you know, if they're coming from backgrounds where they have access to a lot of guns, what is their impact on public safety? As a congresswoman or somebody looking at this from a policy perspective, it would really be around what are we doing through our healthcare platform to take care of the mentally ill? What are we doing through our veteran platform to take care of veterans that are struggling from PTSD and, and other types of trauma coming home from war? You know, what are we doing to protect people who are chronically, who are suffering from chronic mental illness and, and their access, uh, as they're, if they're high functioning, their access to weaponry? And I think we have to start looking at the data and looking at how all of these different groups are, are accessing weapons and also how they're you know, sort of ideating how they're putting out their, their plan to use these weapons. And until we begin to look at this again, like I said, a public health issue, which would incorporate how we view healthcare support and, and other types of trauma support, I don't think that we're going to be able to really tackle this problem effectively. So something you've touched on a few times is how marginalized bodies, trans folks, people of color are disproportionately affected by these things. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your platform for social justice. Thanks, Jordan, for that. As a businesswoman advocate and a mother and a philanthropist, I have been on a journey where I, for many years, I have supported organizations and institutions that have focused on people in transition, people who need advocacy, and some of our most vulnerable populations. When I come to support these organizations, it's always with this sort of foundational or fundamental 
expectation that the the platforms and the foundation that we are built on in this country will stay intact. Civil rights, the civil rights that we fought long and hard for will not be taken away from us, that our courts will be protected and that there will be recourse to the highest court for fair and, and unbiased hearings, and that our voting rights, right, our capacity to keep these things that we care about and to make sure that social justice is is continued in this country would be would be the platform that exists and would be what I would be carried on into in any sort of social justice platform that I'd be focused on as a congressperson. But I have to tell you that in this current administration, I I have shifted from focusing on assuming that the higher level work that you do as a congressperson will persist because this is the first time that I believe that our basic fundamental beliefs as a country are being are being threatened that we have platforms that our courts will be a viable path to protect protect our rights uh, and it has been so far but it, it we keep getting that that challenge getting situations where our voting rights are being challenged or trying to be taken away from us and when you look at some of the work that we have to do in social justice when it comes to again working with our most vulnerable population with criminal reform with working with immigration we have to make sure that these base sort of foundational pillars are are set so for me my first priority would be to do everything i could to to ensure that you know our courts are are being properly staffed with people that are coming you know educated fair unbiased to to hearing cases that are going to literally impact lives in this country, that I would be focusing on on gerrymandered districts and voter suppression because whatever we institute in a social justice platform, if we're not making sure that people have access and their vote counts and they can have a say in, in, in protecting themselves and protecting their communities, that's going to be an even bigger challenge. And then the other piece is access to education and our most basic fundamental rights. You know, if, if we're not educating our society, if we're not protecting our political process, these are things that no matter what we do at a social justice advocacy level could continue to slip away. And we're finding ourselves in a country where hard fought rights that we people died for that we thought were inalienable are, are slowly being taken away from us. So when it comes to social justice, my platform would be to shore up the foundation because until we do that, it's going to be hard to have sustainable social justice in this country because it will constantly be under attack and constantly be be sort of stripped away from, from communities and, and peoples that need that protection most. So lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? I love that question. That's my favorite yeah. question. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so I, I would say that there's there's three, we call it the three M's. And, you know, clearly it's meetings, you know, so come and learn more about our campaign. Please go to www.tamara4forenj.com. That's our website. You can follow us on social media. Uh, Facebook, we're on Tamara4nj, again, F-O-R-N-J. And on Twitter, it's at Tamara for NJ. You know, sign up, volunteer. We need phone bankers. We need volunteers to do canvassing. As you said earlier, Jordan, this is going to be a tough race. I'm not taking anything for granted and we have to go in communities. I plan on knocking at a lot of doors. Grassroots engagement is going to be very crucial. Anything your audience can do to put me out there on social media, make sure that people know about my race, that my platform is being put out there. They're following me and talking about the candidacy. That's going to be very helpful. And then lastly, to consider supporting financially. I've had donations as small as a dollar. To me, you know, advocacy comes in, in all sizes. And, and there's no way I'm going to get to a movement unless people participate and support the campaign in that way. So social media, uh, financial support, and, and reaching out to us. And if you're willing to volunteer and be a part of the movement, we are, we're excited and we want you to, want you to join us.
Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was a really great conversation. Jordan, I really enjoyed our conversation and I've, I've taken lots of notes. You've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> and I, I thank you so much for the opportunity to just share, share why I care and, and why I've decided to do this. So you, you're doing great work. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merchandise at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast for more interviews with great candidates just like this one. Thanks for listening.